Hello, this is Mirella. Just a quick note to let you know that this episode was recorded before isolation measures were implemented. We've held it back for the past few weeks so we could focus on pandemic-related content, which we thought was important to share. We really love this episode, and we hope you will too. Enjoy. Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, we explore bewitching brews, misunderstood microbes, second stomachs, and giving peas a chance. Hi, Joshna. Hello. What are you doing there? I am just whipping up a little beautiful hot chocolate here in the studio. Oh, that smells great. It smells, uh, it smells good. And I can, I can actually smell this. Nice. Oh, my God. It's chocolatey and spicy. Uh, yeah. Nothing better than when you actually can taste a thing for, you know, as opposed to just theoretically talking about it. And tell me about this tool. So this, uh, I brought this in. This is called a Molinillo which is essentially a whisk, but you can see it's got like a bunch of different sort of round bits around this sort of beveled uh, bit, right? It's almost like a rattle. It very rattle-like, it's Mm -hmm. true. And so this, you do a little like swirly hand motion Mm -hmm. to whisk it all up. And essentially what I'm doing is whisking in the melted drinking chocolate into the hot water that we've got here because I'm going to, we've got a taste of some traditional uh, Mexican hot chocolate. Oh, well, let's do it. Yes, right? So we're going to give you a taste, and then we're going to talk about this very cool piece that I found. Um, This is one of the bits that I've brought in today. Uh, We found a a piece called The Chocolate Brewing Witches of Colonial Latin America. Uh, And I've just come back from a trip to Mexico City, so I'm really juiced up with the dreaminess of Mexican food and Mexican culture. But this drinking chocolate is a thing that comes up a lot, uh, right? Because we know the Mayans... Uh, are the originators of chocolate. You know what I mean? They're sort of the ground base on chocolate is there. But the hot chocolate that we know is this rich, creamy thing. Usually there's milk and cream, marshmallows, and that sort of thing involved, right? And often cocoa powder based. Exactly. More Uh, often than not. When the original form, uh, the the chocolate was actually medicinal, right? And and to connect to this piece— uh, it was uh, there was lots of traditional healing and wisdom around making this version of it, right? So you'll see, we've started off with this very raggedy-looking piece of chocolate. And can it be uh, any chocolate, or is it no, especially formulated? This is specially formulated drinking chocolate. It dissolves well. Sometimes ah. these versions have um, sugar or cinnamon things like that in them. This one doesn't. It's from our friends at Chocosol, and it also we haven't taken the time to temper this. Because it's not necessary, right? A tempering is for a snap when you're going to eat a bar. Okay. Right? It sort of stabilizes the the fat, the cocoa uh, Mm -hmm. butter. But when you're just going to melt it into something luxurious like this... It, it, you just, you don't need to go through it, which is why so you're that seeing, why it looks just, it's the, the bloom, outside. it's the fat, the, the bloom, bloom of the fat on the outside. That's what's happening. So that in hot water is producing this. So this elixir mm-hmm. is something that in that sort of indigenous Mexican, South Central and South American women specifically would make. Yes. Right. In the context of this article, it talked about uh, trying to win the affections of a suitor and that sort of thing. But right? they would actually add... 
uh, healing spices or spices that may be associated with certain spells or yes. certain incantations. Yes, black okay. pepper would do things. And there's all sorts okay. of wisdom there. Uh, so let's have a taste while it's still warm. Mm. Oh, that's lovely. It's a whole other thing, right? It is nuanced. Well, it's it's like melted chocolate, basically. It is like melted chocolate. <laughs> but with some uh, but with spice, a, richness, a little yeah. bit of... Uh, of added dimension. You can taste you can taste cinnamon, star anise, and there's good Mexican vanilla in there too. Did you have any particular mm. intention with these spices? Are you uh, casting not the, any kind of? Okay, this was just about <laughs> flavor and and bemusement. Uh, but uh, getting back to this piece. Uh, the like it was a very lengthy piece, and essentially the story was that this was a traditional practice. But then, with the arrival of the Spanish and sort of colonial powers, and then and the really church. strong religious exactly intentions, uh, there was witchcraft was connected with both the things that women do, like in general, mm-hmm. uh, and this chocolate making specifically, right? And there's one quote here. Uh, that I loved so much, and it says, it often emerged in the records as uh, the the chocolate itself often mm-hmm. emerged in the records as a vehicle for women's magic spells and in turn for European anxieties about ruling a majority non-white population filled with women who would do, wouldn't do what they were told. Right. Right. And yes. obviously all of this really resonates with me and the kind of woman that I am in this world. But I love the food connection and this drinking chocolate. So they connection. would point to the chocolate, say you're a witch, you're a and witch. then burn them at the stake because it. they were not being compliant. Precisely. And because these are these sort of uh, they call them pre-Christian practices. Mm-hmm. Right. All the things they sort of found the people with when they arrived in this land. Right. Can I read for you my favorite please, quote? In the piece? Please. Because <laughs> I loved this. So. Uh, Men would complain that women were bewitching them through food, and they were always suspicious of what they were served. However, even the fear of poisoning wasn't enough to make men cook for themselves. I know. I, know. I highlighted that too. <laughs> the obvious Isn't it solution. So great? Dudes are the best. Right? Right? Yeah, the just obvious like, You know what? No, we're just going to burn you all at the stake uh, just because in case you're poisoning cook. us. Yeah. Uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, I love so it. And extreme. I love, I like this wisdom about the the suggestion that chocolate is about the mystery of women's power. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm into that. Like that, it had that helped to sort of frame this in a way that was really, really uh, meaningful. This was especially compelling to me, this piece. I don't know if you're aware of this, but mm. uh, Brewster's mm. alewives were also accused of witchcraft. Oh. Oh my yes, God, this is this makes a lot of sense. So, uh, in the 15th century, there's this historian named Alan Eames, and he went back into the records because these uh, the, these inquisitors, whoever they were, who were doing conducting the witch hunts, they mm-hmm. kept very meticulous records of everyone, you know, yes, every they witch did, they, they, did, uh, they, did. <laughs> they found. Right. So he went through the records in France, Germany, and Scotland, and 60 percent of the women who uh, listed themselves as employed were Brewsters. 60% of the women. Yeah. And in this case, it wasn't really, because when you're talking about the chocolate, they were actually using it to cast spells. Right. Alewives were just making beer. Right. They were just making a drink. Yeah. Right. And right. the threat there, and I wonder if this might be a piece, uh, I didn't read it in the article, but mm-hmm. I wonder if it might be a piece of it. The big threat with alewives is that they were independent women. So yeah. these were women who 
um, you know, might have been widowed or for whatever reason had to make their own income. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way for them to do that would be to brew extra beer and to sell it. So it was one of the ways for women to be financially independent, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. the church did not Not like. like. Right. I really found that parallel. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. And the notion that it's the church, Mm -hmm. that this is about a religious imposition, really trying to take over this kind of control feels super significant. It absolutely was that. And, you know, oh, coincidentally, monks started brewing around Mm -hmm. that time and Mm -hmm. figured out, oh, this is this is actually remunerative. We can make some revenue from this. So, of course, you got to suppress the original source and. And then, and then dominate and subvert, I yeah. suppose, right? This has not been corroborated. Right. But there is a theory out there that our current image of the witch is based on alewives. Oh. Because, of course, they have a big cauldron. They do have a cauldron. Right. Oh, man. Um, and alewives would always hang a broom over their door to let people know that the beer was ready to drink. So there's the association with the broom. Uh, and of course, oh they always had cats around to keep the mice away from the grain. Oh, this so, is so this, interesting. This, again, this historian, Alan Eames, mm-hmm. believes there's a connection there. Uh, I have seen many argu- arguments for, many against, and none of them are super conclusive. Okay. But it's an interesting thing to think about. And certainly the the cats and the whole idea of <gasps> familiars, you know, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these uh, demon possessed right. animals right, right, was right. a big thing with these uh, these ale wives, and people thought their cats were spying on people and doing oh. the devil's work. I also, I mean, it's also so fascinating when you see the idea that the the way to the way to subjugate is to vilify. Right. Right. And you just like you make it undesirable. It's like these women are doing these dangerous, malicious, nasty things. Mm-hmm. Not like because the, the notion of an independent woman making her own decisions and doing something is just too terrifying. Right? Yes. It, like that, that's essentially the truth that we're talking and about. And it's here. interesting you use the word terrifying because yeah. the other thing that Alan Eames points out is that historically before the church got involved in started with these witch hunts. Right. The whole notion of a witch was like a really beautiful woman right. who would, yes. uh, you know. With like nature-based powers and this sort of stuff, yeah, right? Who yeah, who would use her powers of seduction to influence men That's and right. that sort of thing. In this and more goddessy kind yeah, of way. And right. around this time, suddenly they switched it around yeah. and we got this, uh, as you said, terrifying, yeah. <laughs> you know, more... I don't know. Scowly. Scowly. We can say unattractive. Indeed. Indeed. Image. Yeah. I'm really into this whole story Uh, and into the time that we have to sort of uncover the retelling, you know, Mm -hmm. like this uh, simple chocolate story. But to know that this is actually quite political and quite powerful is exciting. And delicious to boot. What? So, Josh, I think we can mm-hmm. agree that fermentation is a hot topic. Sure. Fermented foods, mm-hmm. uh, kimchi, sauerkraut. Kombucha. Kombucha. Yes. Uh, kefir. Yep. Which I haven't had. It's delicious. I just actually made a soup out of it recently and it's very, very good. Very yummy. A lighter, spunkier version of yogurt. 
Does spunkier mean more of that fermentation character? Yeah, oh, I need to go there. Yeah, brighter and funkier, yeah. Okay. Great. So here's the interesting thing. When we talk about all these foods, we, well, certainly I, assume they're probiotic. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at kombucha, for example, that's what right. they're touting. Uh, but that's the story, exactly. Right. And so I was very surprised to learn recently that they are not necessarily. There is right? a, yeah. no research to this effect. So to clarify, when we're talking about probiotic, we're talking about something that has a bunch of live mo- microorganisms yes. in it. And that has enough of these microorganisms that when they get into your system, they have you know a positive effect right. on your system, usually your digestive Yeah, it's a flora-fauna thing. Right. Yeah, uh, and your immune system. Right. But uh, a food science professor and researcher at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and author of Microbiology and Technology of Fermented Foods, Robert Hutkins, Mm -hmm. has recently come out and said that we really uh, have not done any research to see if these foods are actually probiotic. We don't know exactly which uh, microbes and bacterias are in there, and we don't know if they're there in sufficient amounts to actually have a probiotic effect. I was floored. I, I was actually really surprised myself when I read this. Um, I was a bit encouraged by the further clarification, which is the fact that we that we don't know this to be sure because we haven't right. researched, as opposed to we checked it out and there's nothing. Of course. Right? That, yeah, uh, that, that was been... I was happy with that. But I myself was very like and I and so then I started thinking, mm-hmm. is this just major collective misinformation? How, has there been misrepresentation? Is there this epic game of broken telephone? What's this I don't why know. Why is this yeah. such a surprise? Because you and I are reasonably informed people, particularly yeah. about this idea, you know, this genre of Topic, mm-hmm. but this was news to both of us. Now that I read this information, I can I can see how these leaps were mm-hmm. made because okay. it I see it happen in the beer world a lot. I'm sure it happens in all fields. Mm-hmm. I just happen to be in the beer field. Yeah. For example, I remember a couple of years ago a study came out saying that beer was one of the richest food and drinks in, in terms of dietary silicon. Okay. And mm. they specify that there was definitely a lot in there, but they just weren't sure. If we drank the beer, you know, if it then was bioavailable to us, see. if we okay. absorbed it. And all of the headlines, all of the headlines were drink beer because it's good for your bones. Oh, beer is the so best thing for your bones. So I think the media likes to look at a study and then jump to conclusions. Yeah. So we do know that fermented foods have all of these uh, microorganisms in right, them. We know right. microorganisms are probiotic. So mm-hmm. I can see they just kind of went, went with it. Maybe. It makes sense, right? It mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, I, uh, I what the thing that I think is fascinating because this really resonates in a lot of the work mm-hmm. that I do is this idea for a need for empirical academic evidence of what what your common sense is telling you is true, right? That's true. Because while there's no clinical evidence for the role of ferments in good health and wellness, mm-hmm. uh, we have history and tradition are plentiful. Right. Telling us about this, right? I did a quick look and found early dates of fermented beverages in 7000 BCE in China. And were they used for digestive yes. issues? Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, there you go. All along the way, right? And that takes us right up to 2013, which is when the wonderful Sandor Katz wrote The Arts uh, Fermentation, and that sort of sparked a lot of the resurgence that we're this seeing recently. Trend. Right? This, uh, this whole conversation makes me laugh a lot because there is so much of this 
we're we're going to say no it's not it doesn't have these properties or it's not like this when we we just don't have academic proof that that's the truth yet we've right. lived for thousands of years and in 2 years we're going right? to be sitting here recording a podcast saying well there's a study now that proves what we've known all along it is in <laughs> fact the truth hilarious uh the good news is obviously fermentation we ferment foods because it preserves them mm-hmm. right and uh in fermentation what we actually are doing for sure is increasing the bioavailability of healthy nutritional compounds yes. in plants. And while we're not sure about necessarily the probiotic properties, it definitely enhances digestion. Yes, and a clearly. classic example of that is people who are lactose intolerant can have yogurt. Yes, because Great the bit. fermentation yep. has already broken down, I guess, the lactose. Mm-hmm. And so it allows them to digest right. it. So there are definitely positive and we see it with We're bread just not too, sure. right? It's, it happens a lot right. with bread uh, that sourdough or fermented uh, doughs are much more digestible for folks who have otherwise have wheat intolerances. Exactly. Yeah. So it's definitely there are some positive elements there, but there are also a lot of question marks. For example, you know, once these foods are cooked, does that kill the, the microbes? Interestingly, in the case of right. bread, they have found it does not because apparently you can make, you can take a cooked piece of sourdough bread and retrieve the starter back from it, which I was not aware of. I didn't know that either. Um, So they have done some tests there. I don't know exactly how it's done, but they have proven that the the microbes or whatever the I keep saying microbes. Is I that think the right you're word? right. Okay. I think you're totally right. Yes. <laughs> it's I think my brain is short circuiting because uh microbe in French is germs. So oh, <laughs> every cute. time I okay. say it there's a little part of my that's brain funny. that's okay. wondering. But yeah, I I think let's stay tuned. I would be shocked if people are not researching this. It, it, considering how trendy it is. Yep, it's and the there've definitely been studies with kefir. Mm-hmm. But um I'm sure Kombucha studies are not far behind. I agree. I agree. And uh, whether they're probiotic or not, I'm going to continue to enjoy my kimchi. Because they're delicious. And kombucha. What else is delicious? Everything fermented is delicious. (gasps) Fermented pickles. Yes. Now, Joshna, are you familiar with the concept of the second stomach? Or the dessert stomach. I, I feel like I have made the argument to my parents at some point. Oh, really? There's another space <laughs> somewhere for sweet things, for is, sure. Is this a phenomenon that you have experienced? It, well, I, I've willed it into existence, I think, more than anything. <laughs> no, actually, it's a, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing. And uh, I just read an article recently by Russell Keat, who is a chef and professor in sensory and food science at Deakin University. All right. What he's saying is that evolutionarily, we have this trait to keep our diet varied. Right. So we have this mechanism that if we eat too much of one thing, we get bored with it so that we then have a craving for something different. Mm -hmm. And that keeps our diet varied. It's called sensory specific satiety. Or SSS, as he calls it. (laughs) I understand why. That's a a mouthful. Indeed. So he developed this experiment. I think it's pretty gross. Let me know how you would uh, fare. Okay, okay, let's hear it. So he brought together a group of people and he had them pound back as fast as they could 300 milliliters of strawberry milkshake. (sighs) Okay. And then he gave them 700 milliliter of strawberry milkshake and said, just drink as much of it as you can. 
after having pounded back already 300 yes, mil. Okay. He then had them come back another day and had them again pound back 300 mil of strawberry right. milkshake as quickly as they could. Mm. And then he gave them 700 mil of chocolate milkshake and oh. said, drink as much of this as you can. And invariably across the board, everyone was able to drink more. More of the of chocolate. The chocolate. I don't know. I mean, I enjoy milkshakes, but yeah. just the thought of this, exp- I don't know. It's it's making me a little queasy. It's a lot of, it's a lot of thick liquid. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. 300 plus, like that's like almost a liter. I feel like he could have used a friendlier. I think so too. Yeah. Or even just milk. Like right. the milkshakeness feels like it's a lot it's a to lot. take down. But uh, uh, so yeah, across the board, that's, uh, you know, the chocolate, What they were able to actually physically able to eat more of the chocolate. When uh, when I was reading through this, I, I the, the bit that I loved was the suggestion that this is a biodiversity thing. Mm-hmm. Right? And that and that this is about the animals inside of us uh, understanding that their different nutrition is available in different foods, essentially, and that's why we have to have this craving and desire for other things. Yeah. Uh, and it started also getting me thinking about kids, Right. When I watch my people try and teach their children to eat, one of the things that is very clear with little people's meals, like I'm talking just starting to eat, yeah. is that they need a whole bunch of different things. They need to play around. They need to play around. Flavors. They need to have a sweet thing and then a sour thing and then a salty thing. That's uh, interesting. And it's not, I don't, that the, this must be connected somehow. Well, it's it's right? how we're wired. Yeah. Apparently. So then apparently, you know, when we are presented with a new food, something triggers within us that that says, okay, um, this is a new thing. It's going to have different nutrients in it. And that triggers your your appetite and your brain actually overrides your satiety. Yes. Satiety. I said it. Satiety. Satiety. Your satiety uh, signals and gives you room for more food. And in the case of dessert... Sugar apparently relaxes your stomach, right. so you physically have more space so, to cram okay. it in there. So I, I was interested in this sugar making relaxing your stomach thing because the chronology doesn't quite make sense. Okay. Because, okay, so Thanksgiving dinner is a great example for mm-hmm. something like this. We've all eaten all the turkey and the stuffing and the potatoes and the, all the things, and we're stuffed full of savory things, mm-hmm. right? But this suggests that, like, the... Alleged, like according to this argument, this the relaxation and the space in your stomach will only come after eating dessert. Good point. Right. So Good how? Point. Or is, maybe after your first bite. I, this is. I'm not sure. The onset of the relaxation is what I wasn't sure about because mm-hmm. how would this make it easier for you to eat more dessert if you need to eat the sugar to relax your stomach? Right. That that piece I wasn't quite sure about. It, it doesn't explain there being room for dessert. Yeah. Uh, but the idea that you need a flavor swing pendulum yeah. style to something completely different from yeah. the gravy and the stuffing and all of that makes perfect sense. Also, now in retrospect, I'm thinking of the milkshakes and I'm thinking that's cruel. Yes. <laughs> he actually stretched their stomach well, from the opposite with sweetness. Right. With, yeah. From that first 300 mil. To see That's how it. much could cram in there. That's it, right? I wonder so, if he thought of that. I, I'm curious too. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm ill just thinking. Yeah, about it. it's it's a. Uh, so here's where it. my brain went. Talk to me. Uh, am I evolutionarily flawed in some way? Because I I never want dessert. Oh, <laughs> at the end right. of the meal. And I thought, what's wrong with me? Was oh, right. I not wired properly? This is it to and stay alive. So. Huh. 
I did a little digging okay. and I did find a caveat that the new food does have to be appealing to you for this. Oh, to your to personal work. taste. Yeah. I see. Okay. Okay. And that helps. Certainly for me, I know that I like to end on a savory note. Mm-hmm. I don't like a sweet flavor lingering in my mouth. Right. Uh, when I was actually to this day, if I if I have a sweet, I have to go back and have a vegetable after or a coffee. Oh, so you can't have the sweetness lingering. That's no, the thing. It, I really don't like it. <sighs> and I do enjoy sweets, but I generally have them away from meals and with a coffee or a tea. Okay. But at the end of the meal, I've just had, you know, a delicious, mm, I don't know, pasta or some meat, meat or some or veggies. Yeah. I want that flavor to linger in my mouth. Mm. I don't want to, to me, it ruins it to bring in something sweet. So then that, so that just made me feel better when I, yeah. <laughs> that, that helps. Uh, it's not just anything. Yeah. It has to work for yeah. who you are. That but on sense. the dark side, yeah. um, with the variety of foods that we have today, which is huge, this, you know, evolutionary mechanism that we have really does get us used to overeating. And it's also part of the reason why we're not so much in touch with when we're full. Yes. Because it's always something new. Yes. And so your brain is always overriding Mm -hmm. the feeling full. So, hmm. and there's, and there's a bit of perpetual dissatisfaction there. Yeah. Right. And I was, it just really made me sad to read that even if you overeat and you feel stuffed and you feel gross the next day, when you get to the end of that meal and you see that dessert, your biological system will just override the memory of it being gross and everything. And it's just, it's really just yeah. wired the yeah. overriding is the big piece there. That felt a bit scary to me, right? It's to freaky. Just, uh, because I, I have experience of it happening in my own body mm-hmm. frequently, right? I'm like, how did I? I was I just walked around here clutching my tummy, mm-hmm. talking about how stuffed I am, yet no problem with that ice cream. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's, really, it's a really curious thing to watch. It's uh, And it's fascinating that it, it lingers because... You know, how long has it been hmm. since we've been in this state that we needed these biological instincts? Right, exactly. But it's just the way we're wired. That's it. We're animals, right? It's the animals inside of us. Did you read about this climate positive gin? I did. And I was really interested in it, actually. We, we're seeing little sort of creeps of these kinds of ideas uh, but I, I, the peas, right? I was really into this idea of the peas uh, and the fact that that's the, the angle on this. Uh, but you talk a little bit more about it because I got some questions, but maybe that's a later, that's a later on thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, delightfully enough, this product was developed by a woman, nice. Christy Black, Thanks, in Christy. Scotland. And it's a gin that, as you mentioned, is based uh, the peas are the the source of starch mm-hmm. instead of grains. And apparently a 700 milliliter bottle has a carbon footprint of negative 1.5 kilograms yes. of carbon dioxide. Because the peas, pea plants help to restore, uh, I believe they help to balance out nitrogen. Yes. Right? Yeah. In, the, in, the, in the ground. They capture nitrogen from yes. the air, so you don't need to use a nitrogen That's it. fertilizer. And they use pea shoot cover crops as they, when they, farmers yeah. I know, they do this for a rotation. So that felt very smart to me. It, the it, leaning into ways that actually boost soil health. Yes. Uh, felt like a really smart Absolutely. Move. Yeah. And the other piece I found 
super interesting is that the what's left over after they've done the fermentation, mm-hmm. the you know the the, the gunk distillate, yeah. that's that's left. No, the, not the distillate. Okay. The, the stuff they would throw out. Okay, like got it. Okay. Residue. There's a term for it. I forget. Um, and so that is used to feed cattle because it is very rich in protein. Mm, and a nice. huge piece of this carbon offsetting is the fact that they can use this to feed cattle instead of soy that mm-hmm. comes from Brazil. Yes. So that's making a big difference. And I was not aware of this, but 70% of European cattle feed is imported. 70%. That's a lot. Oh my God, that makes my heart race. Yeah. I guess the grass just isn't tasty enough. I don't, I'm, I'm not a farmer. No, no, I don't know. I think proteins are, are needed. I'm not seeing and, any grass anytime um, soon, which is the sadness. I know that spent grains from brewing mm-hmm. are also used to feed cattle, yep. but these peas are apparently more nutritious. They have more That's proteins. That's great. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting on many fronts. I'd want to taste the gin. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So here's, (laughs) yeah. This is where I had some questions Mm -hmm. because they talked. Because at first I was like, well, if it's peas, Mm -hmm. is it still gin? That's a good question. Was my thing. So then I went some digging, and and the research I found said that uh, gin is a the the important piece is that there's it's it's generally a twice distilled thing. Yes. Right. First is the distilling the grain to get the alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then there's the distillation with the botanical, which is usually juniper. Right. Right. Which is why I'm like, can you, is is it gin if juniper is not involved? Mm -hmm. But then I, what I, when I did this thinking through, I realized that what the peas are doing is just replacing that first distillation. That's right. right? It's the peas instead of the grain. It's giving you your neutral alcohol base. Right. And then the second distillation with the botanicals, obviously including juniper in all of that, Mm. right, which made a lot of sense. And then uh, the piece that I saw talked about how sometimes there's no second distillation because the botanicals are delicate, as in the context of Hendrix and the cucumber and the rose. Oh, interesting. Right? The, the cucumber, they're too fragile. So they fragile, just infuse? So they just infuse. And it's not a second stage distillation. Uh, so that got me really excited about this because that this is, this is smart innovation, I think. Right? Yeah. And certainly I would imagine that that base spirit, that original spirit could also be served as a vodka. Yes. Uh, it could be sold as a vodka before I, I they add. I think you're right. The, but it, it, it makes sense that you bring out this legislative piece because this happened in Scotland. So yeah. the obvious thing would have been to make a scotch. Totally. Right? totally. But there are definitely regulations that say whiskey has to be grain based. Right. And I think the flavor of the grain does come through mm-hmm. and it adds something. Right. But in the case of gin or of vodka, you're really starting with a neutral spirit. Totally. So it doesn't matter what you make it nope. out of. And I particularly love the added touch that they then use lemongrass and various herbs that are available on their property. So it's an entirely yeah, local it, it, it gin. Was really, uh, I was really into it. I will also say one of the things I loved about this piece was another mm-hmm. legitimate opportunity to use the phrase, give peas a chance. <laughs> That really made me I think smile. I'm uh, I'm discovering an affinity you have for puns. I really that do. That I wasn't aware uh, particularly of. Particularly food-based puns. It's all coming out now. It's the Noted. Because mm-hmm. like puns lot. are huge in beer. Yeah. But, uh, it's, uh, I like it a We're moving away from smile them. a lot. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's give peas uh, a chance. Let's give peas a chance. we got to get our hands on a bottle. If you're enjoying our podcast, please leave a rating or review. It helps others find us. Hot Plate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. 
Original music by Dave Bell. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hot Plate Pod. Follow me at Beerology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening.